Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Voices on Voices.network. This is Episode 7, and this episode is Occupy Impunity. Uh, Jared, could you introduce yourself, please? Sure. My name is Jared E. Paxton, and I'm an assistant professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University, and uh, lately I've been a uh, part-time political correspondent for the New Republic with work in the New Republic and the New York Times, and a uh, running blog of sorts over at Atticus Review. Okay. Well, uh, I wanted to start off with I'm new to your writing. I saw my first piece of it last night as you were covering what you did, I assume, for the last New Republic article. Uh, and you, uh, you you did a really superb job of painting word pictures of what it felt like to be a correspondent. Um, can, can you kind of bring us up to speed here? What do we need to know? Sure. Um so I've been going to Trump rallies for about a year now, and um, I've, I've been there for some of the, the bigger events, actually. I was there the night that he announced his proposed Muslim ban. Um, you know, of course, last night was the so-called pivot that everybody's talking about today. Um, and the one thing that I've seen time and time again um, is that these rallies are really, really offensive spaces. Um, you have a lot of people who gather in one place who regularly are sort of bound by societal expectations and who, you know, have to sort of keep a low profile in terms of sort of the more offensive things that they believe and they want to say. And when they get into these spaces, um, they sort of feed off of each other. And, you know, they've been given permission by Trump to feel the way that they do because society is, has done such a job in making them feel guilty about what they think and how they feel and how they see the world that hmm. it's sort of been hidden until now. And now Trump has sort of given them permission. And what I've done is um, I started this just sort of as a small project. Um, I was doing it for myself. I was going to write a book that, you know, maybe like 20 or 30 people might end up buying or something like that. And it was actually to try and keep myself sane during an election that I saw um, sort of looking boring ahead of me. You know, it looked very much like it was going to be Hillary Clinton <laughs> versus Jeb Bush. And I was like, well, I'm going to entertain myself with this project. So I started going to these these rallies. And I noticed that what I saw in person was in direct opposition to what was being reported. Because as you might remember, um, back during the Republican primaries, uh, basically the cable news networks took the stance where they would put up a camera and it would just face the Trump stage. And they would just let him talk for an hour and a half to two hours. And they did this, you know, with no other candidate. They gave him hours upon hours of free network time and exposure, and nobody said anything besides, wow, some of these things he's bringing up are kind of offensive. So what I did was... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. Laugh or cry. Hey, that's exactly how I feel, too. And, you know, I, I decided I'd like, I wanted to go into the, uh, the crowd. I call it the scrum. It's like being at a concert where, like, you know, in like the riot pit or whatever someone would call it. You jumped in the mosh pit. Yeah, I jumped in the mosh pit. And uh, the thing about it is a lot of people have asked me, like, why I'm able to sort of capture these things. And the simple truth of it is, um, you know, I come from a working class southern Indiana background. Uh, I'm a white male who looks a certain way, and so I can kind of go in there with impunity and and not be noticed. So I started going into these rallies, and what I found was that there is unbelievable amounts of of racism, misogyny, xenophobia, and what's even, like, worse is all of those things are combined into a violent rhetoric that these people have. when I, with the night of the, the proposed Muslim ban, that was in South Carolina aboard a, an aircraft carrier. And afterwards, I heard Trump supporters talking about wanting to shoot protesters, wanting to actually murder them. Uh, you know, after that, I, I've heard people call for Hillary Clinton to be hung, to be executed, to be shot. Uh, last night, what happened was that um, 
you know, there's been this narrative building because, quite frankly, all of his supporters, they hang on his every word. They, they believe what, he, what he's selling, and they more or less parrot back what, he, what narrative he's giving them. And the narrative that's been building for a while is that the media is untrustworthy, that um, the media is biased in this way that it's, it's coming to get him and, and ruin him. And, you know, Trump has dropped all these little anecdotes about the press being scum and the slime of the earth and the lowest form of life and how dishonest they are and how disgusting they are. And it's taken hold. And what I saw last night was a group of people who have slowly started to realize that there's a very, very good chance that Donald Trump isn't going to win this presidential election. Um, you know, they've seen the polls. They know how bad the, the campaign has been sort of, um, you know, squandering its, its, its chance. And, um, you know, we've seen, like, the Paul Manafort story, the idea that he has these Russian ties and, and it's very, very shadowy and slimy. And we also have these other stories about how dysfunctional the campaign is and how top GOP people and allies have had to come in for interventions and how Trump isn't capable of doing this job. So they see a race that's slipping away from them. And last night was the first time that I actually heard people talk about the possibility that he was going to lose, which I haven't heard in all these other rallies. Everyone's always been like, you know, what's it going to be like when Trump's president? What's the first thing he's going to do when he's president? And last night, I noticed this spreading narrative that, A, he might not win the election, and B, if he loses the election, it's because of the media. And what came out of that was the violent rhetoric that everyone's been showing towards, like, Black Lives Matter, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama. All of that hatred is now being shared with the media who, you know, as you probably know, they're, they're in the room. And, you know, they're in this uh, cornered off area, this press pit, where reporters and cameramen and, and all of these people are. And it's starting to really uh, turn into a bad situation. I mean, they were talking about wanting to lock up ter- or, uh, terrorists. They were talking about locking up journalists. They were talking about wanting to lobotomize them. They were calling them perverts. Um, they, you know, they, they basically are advocating this like really terrifying sort of violence towards the press. And it's becoming, and, and afterwards, and this was even worse, is that person after person kept talking about when Trump loses, what the violence is going to be like, which no, I think okay. is one of the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you there, but can you, can you explain why they think he's going to lose? Is it the election fraud issue? Is that a big that's piece exactly, of it? That's exactly right. And, and you know, the, this is one of those things that I think journalists have, have, have had a really uh, sort of sordid relationship with because it's obvious that Trump doesn't want to lose space in public, right? Like, he's losing so badly, and he's doing so poorly. Like, he is, he's a terrible general election candidate. And I think that, in an effort to try and sort of pad the the embarrassment of losing so badly, he started this narrative, of course, that the election is rigged, that there's voter fraud, there's election fraud, to the point where he's even talked about hiring people to observe the election, which is completely illegal, or bringing in foreign observers, which is completely illegal. And he, he sort of created this story that even if he loses, it's, it's not a real loss, right? And, and he sort of uh, quarantined his base from the disappointment and realization that they're in, like, an extreme minority, that they're alone and that the American people don't feel the way that they do. And so now they're talking about the possibility that, you know, if, 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 if he can't win the election, then the only recourse is, is violent revolution. And, you know, they, they keep saying it, and this is something, you know, you and I are a couple of Hoosiers, so we both know this, the phrase you know, take matters into their own hands, right, <laughs> which, is, which is this old dog-whistling phrase, which means literally, you know, torches and pitchforks and getting your shotgun and, you know, uh, going to Washington. And they really think that they, they want this. And on top of that, I know from my experience with people that I know who support Trump and, and who have been in favor of Trump or uh, are predisposed to appreciate Trump, 
this is a fantasy that a lot of people have had for a very long time. You know, this is why they think the Second Amendment is so important is because they literally think that at some point they're going to have to, quote, unquote, take the country back. And Trump, whether intentional or not, is feeding into that narrative and is is brewing a a really dangerous situation, I think. I think the election fraud, and again, one of the one of the premier reasons why you don't want to mess with people's ability to vote is because it's either the ballot or the bullet. It looks like we're beginning to get the backflash off of years and years and years of, of, of obvious election tampering. I mean, this isn't, a, this isn't a myth. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is basically, in some cases, they're gathering evidence of, of a conspiracy charges. Um, there is legal action coming. And, again, that's kind of like Groundhog Day, and we'll try to get into that later. Got about uh, nine minutes left in this section. And, again, part of what we'd like you to do is, is if you can, can you think back to what it felt like? Um, mm-hmm. Can you can you describe that? And I'll have some of those tweets uh, showing in, in consecutive order. Uh, but it's, it's the feel, the word picture. Uh, Again, you're a really gifted writer. Uh, how, how does it feel? It feels like a barely contained riot is what it feels like. And, and, this is, and, and the funniest thing about it is Trump rallies are, are, are a different thing. When they reach a fever pitch, it feels like literally anything in the world can happen. You know, when the, when the rally ends and people stream out of, out of the building, a lot of the times there are protesters out there and they will get in their faces and they will threaten them. And uh, in Jacksonville, I, I want to say last week, I think it was, or maybe the week before, I saw Trump supporters shoving Confederate flags and, you know, uh, protesters' faces and trying to incite them into violence. And they're telling them that they, you know, they wish they could kill them and all these different little interactions that they've had over the past year. Um, when they lose it, they lose it. And, and it gets really, really um, intense. Inside of the arena, there are laws. Because here's the thing. So Trump just hired a, a new campaign staff, and they've changed the way that he speaks and the way he presents things. In the past, his speeches were incredibly boring, right? He would um, – <laughs> they were. He would, he would ramble <laughs> about his polls and how brilliant he was and how much money he had. And people would start chanting, build the wall, as if they were at, like, a rock concert and wanted to hear the greatest hits. And they were just so bored of him. But at the same time, this has always felt like it's been one or two sparks away from becoming a riotous situation. There's so much ugliness. There's so much anger in these places. I mean, you know, at every one of these things, I see literally Dozens, if not hundreds of people who are red-faced from screaming. I mean, they're, they're um, clenching their fists and getting up on their tiptoes and just yelling at whatever the speaker is saying and calling for people to be killed and locked up and executed. And I mean, it's, it's everything you can possibly imagine in terms of offensiveness. There are racial epitaphs. There's misogynistic language. They're calling the president a Muslim terrorist and, and, and even worse, racial slurs. I mean, it, it, it's just this, it, it's sort of a, a, a very, very controlled chaos that at all times there's like things happening in the, in, in the center of it. Like I said, in the scrum, in the mosh pit, there's this energy to it. And people feed off of each other. Like one person will say an offensive thing and then a person a couple of feet away from them will sort of like notice that it was okay for that person to say this thing and then they'll say something worse and then next thing you know they're screaming like the most offensive things imaginable and they're building up in this hatred. Then if there happens to be a protester in the room, they want to hurt that protester. I mean, I saw um, this was in Greensboro, North Carolina. This is where things sort of broke open for my uh, my coverage of the campaign. And there was this protester who um, showed himself a little bit too early, and it was obvious that he had another buddy of his. They had they were wearing matching shirts. I think it was some sort of like um, nonverbal communication. 
And so his buddy revealed himself earlier, and then the other kid was left there, and people were walking up to him, like getting chest to chest, and they were like, what are you going to do? Are you a protester? And then when Trump got on stage, every time Trump said something, the guy next to that protester would scream at him, clap, clap right now. Are you going to clap? Are you going to clap? And it was like this physical intimidation that it was obvious that if this person stepped out of line, there were going to be physical consequences. And that's how it feels in these places. And you can tell the protesters because they're terrified that this mob is going to tear them apart. And meanwhile, Trump is up on the stage, and if there, you know, up until recently, if there was a protester, he would, you know, say things like, don't hurt them, don't hurt them, I wish I could hurt them, all this stuff. And, and it just, it, it's, it's this moment to moment, possibility of there being just terrible violence and and you feel it at all times it's incredibly tense i've been recognized at these things and and i'll be completely honest with you it feels unsafe at those moments um <laughs> but it's just um it is not it's it's you know it's not something you should be bringing your kids to even though people are um they're just sort of like these um i don't know if you've ever read 1984 it's like mm-hmm. the five minute hate mm-hmm. right it's it's just people screaming about everything that they hate in the world and getting all of it out. And by the time they leave the rally, I mean, I've heard, um, I've heard people outside of rallies saying that immigrants aren't people, saying just repulsive things to their children. And, and by the time they leave, they're just so amped up on this stuff that uh, it, it, it just could bleed over at any given moment. All right, about four minutes left. Um... Can you give people also a feel for how they should try to interpret the news they're seeing from the media? How do the reporters feel, the other reporters? Can you give us a feel for that? Well, you know, I talked to some reporters uh, after last night, and all of them told me that they, they've they been feeling pretty intimidated lately, that um, <laughs> there have been all these little moments where, um, you know, they – they feel like people are starting to single them out and they're starting to get in their faces. I mean, there's now that, um, you know, there's now that infamous clip of, a, of an older Trump supporter flipping them off, calling them traitors, yelling, I am patriot or something like that. And uh, they are, for the most part, uh, sort of feeling more pressure from the crowd. Um, but, you know, it's it's nothing that's, brand new. I mean, at every one of these rallies, there's a moment where Trump will start into his lambasting of the media, and everyone will turn around and stare at them and scream at them and boo and call them traitors and liars, tell them they should be locked up, all that all that stuff. So, I mean, there, there really is a sense of, of um, growing, rising tension with these people. And, uh, and I think it's pretty palpable. I think everyone's well aware that this is something that's, that's building, if not building, to something. About two minutes left in this segment. Uh, were you there when the quote about, uh, and I'm going to maul the quote, but if I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. And no, no, I wasn't there for that, but, well, that's, I, but I that's think that's true. Textbook impunity. And, and, in, and in the case of the other reporters, there used to be a feeling that, hey, don't shoot the piano player. I'm just mm-hmm. just reporting here. Um, again, a loss of impunity. Um, any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think what's happened here, and I, I think you're exactly right, I think that um, – I think that when he said that, and I was not there for that rally, but I think when he said that, I think it's true. I I, I think that you have a lot of people who have built up sort of a, you know, it's it's a terrible metaphor, but I'll go ahead and use it. They've built up a wall, right, that protects them from sort of ideas and and concepts that, that bother them, they don't agree with. You know, and that's through media, that's through the Internet, that's, you know, the, the usage of their phone and what news sources they trust. And I think when the media infringes on that, and by infringe, I mean, you know, they report things that these people simply don't want to hear, 
I think that's where the backlash comes from. And I think it's gone from being a thing where maybe occasionally you think, well, maybe this news has some bias to it. It's gotten to the point where people literally believe that all of these different companies and groups are pushing different realities. And, and if they're pushing these different realities, then they're doing it for some sort of purpose. Their bias has some sort of endpoint. And so I think what's happening with these people is they now see the media as sort of the barbarians of the gate, the intruders who are going to take over their country, quote-unquote, and they're, they're not going to leave anything for them behind. So I think it's turned into a real life-or-death struggle with some of these supporters. You seem to notice that it was a sea change in your tweets last night, and I think the point here is, uh, has maybe, has there been a loss of feeling of impunity from Trump at this point? And is that part of the rage that we're seeing? You know, I think that's interesting. I think what, what Trump's doing, and, and again, I said it earlier, I think he's trying to pad himself against this idea of a, of a loss. But I think what he's doing is that uh, he's playing this very, very careful game where he can say things where he's getting um, messages across to his supporters. And I think they're reading between the lines. And, and I think it's quite obvious. I've, I've actually been working on a, a, piece, for, a piece about this lately. Um, I, I think it's obvious that he gives his supporters enough room for them to create these narratives because they all share the same narrative. Right, They're all on the same page, and they're all saying the exact same thing, and they're parroting what, you know, sort of the absence of what Trump is saying. So I think Trump has, I think he's intentionally stoked this situation. I don't think he's necessarily looking for people to get hurt, but I think he's definitely created a situation where that can happen. Well, that kind of brings us into the second segment of the show. We're at about 23 minutes into the show now. And I wanted to try to try to get into more detail on stochastic terrorism. Um, this is was a new term to me up until a couple of months ago. Uh, I've been trying to get a show together on it, but I can't get anybody to go on the record for hmm. it. <laughs> uh, again, for possibly for some of the reasons we've just been covering, um, there is a lot of uh, self censorship going on. Let's oh, start that list with me. Um, I'm I'm dying to make <laughs> the the classic. Well, if you make a Nazi reference, you've already lost the argument thing. Uh, but mm-hmm. your tweets last night, like I told you, reminded me of William L. Shire and Berlin Diary. Uh, people may be more familiar with Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Uh, but before that, he was a correspondent for I think Chicago Tribune. Uh, and wire services. Um, so, so I'm not going to say that there's a similarity to to the rise and fall of the Third Reich. However, <laughs> um, it sure reminded me of it from what you were tweeting last night. Uh, can you real quickly touch on and, and Shire is somebody you're familiar with? Um, yeah, I you know that that's the thing about this is there's been this real issue with, uh, and I think this happens a lot with with journalists. I think journalists are in a place where um, I think they're looking at a situation where you have to wonder, when do you start calling the kettle black, right? Um, I, 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 I consider myself a writer, first and foremost, some sort of a writer who's been thrown into the middle of this situation, kind of kicking and screaming. Like, I didn't really <laughs> I didn't really plan on this turning out the way that it has. You know, I didn't, I didn't plan on getting, you know, sources from inside campaigns and, and hearing these rumors and, you know, or the having to drill. Or the, you didn't yeah, plan on the death exactly threats, right. did you? Hey, I, I just started getting some more today. You know, I, uh, rapture. Bef- before we got on here, like I, it's funny the the white nationalists they they work in in shifts, and right. so they actually I thought they were done with me, and then it was like oh started back up here we go again <laughs> I got to block everybody. Um, so uh, no, yeah, I, I didn't plan. Yeah, pretty phenomenal block list myself because I came in, <laughs> <laughs> I came in through trying to cover uh, the, the Palestinian bombings a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that was organized gang stalking. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's on the record. Uh, megaphone uh, was a reference from it. Uh, then the Ferguson uprising, and it's actually now documented that there was uh, police boards that were stirring people up to target individuals for uh, harassment. So, so what used to be a conspiracy theory about organized gang stalking uh, has now has now become well. Uh, no, that's that's actually documented now. Um, stochastic terrorism. Well, and that's, that's, that's what we're talking thing. about. Well, right, and I think that's the craziest thing about this is, you know, everything that's happened in this election and. Starting with Trump's announcement of his candidacy, you know, we we have this guy who he's kind of a national joke and he gets in front of a podium and he says, you know, the Mexicans are coming across the border and they're rapists and they're drug dealers and they're murderers, all this stuff. Starting from that moment, everything got put on the table. And I think we're still sort of, I mean, like, you know, you pay attention to the news, the past what, two weeks, three weeks have had more twists and turns out of that campaign than anybody could ever imagine. And, you know, it feels like the past two weeks have lasted two years. I mean, just this morning, Paul Manafort (laughs) resigned, and now there's, like, all this stuff coming out about, you know, his influence over Trump and the Ukraine and all this stuff. So everything's on the table. And you have a news media, and again, I don't concern myself with journalists. I'm a writer who happens to dabble in this stuff. Yeah, I I won't say journalist. I'm I'm a reporter. (laughs) There Uh, you go. I report. Yes, you do. Superbly. I think a lot – well, thank you. I think a lot of people are very worried, like you said, about making these historical comparisons. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, people from the peanut gallery are more than happy to call everyone an um, but, you know, when it comes time to call a demagogue a demagogue, what do you do? And right? that's not just on one candidate, because we've also got the fear of one monster being used to intimidate the, the, the Bernie backers, uh, and there'll be a link to that article. Uh, yeah, we're seeing this on both sides. It's a fear-driven terrorism. Uh, Oh, absolutely it is. And I think that I think what you're saying is is exactly right because we now are sort of in this we're in this situation where we have a candidate who and again, I, I I'm not gonna sit here, I'm not gonna call Donald Trump Adolf Hitler. I think that's I think that I think that's a dangerous comparison to make because yes, obviously yes it is. You, you because obviously you don't know what evil lies in a person's heart until they're given the keys to government. Right? Um, it's, but you, you know, once somebody's in power is when you find out how they would wield power. And I, I don't feel comfortable saying that, you know, Trump would pull something Hitler, Hitlerian, but I can tell you this, the man flirts with fascism, straight up flirts with fascism openly. It's, and, and it's this, um, you know, I, whenever I talk to people, I call it I call it like an American disease. We've had to fight fascism for as long as we've been around, and I think fascism's been in in men's hearts since there were men. I think there's always been sort of a battle between people who just want to live their lives and other ones who are more than willing to crush a few skulls if it gets them what they want. Trump has shown himself to, if not the embracing of of, of fascism, he's he's definitely comfortable with it. And so I think there's a real fear, like you said, of invoking these ideas, you know, and everyone uses the phrase strong man, right? That's the phrase everyone kicks around now, which is actually just a euphemism for a fascist, right? And we don't even really want to get into what is happening or how close we are right now to living in under a fascist. I mean, um, there are, there are two candidates who can win this election, and one of them probably is a fascist. That's frightening, and nobody wants to sort of connect those dots. I mean, they'll occasionally say that, you know. But and, and on the other side of it, you can make a good case for a war criminal. That that's not just a potential, but the record is there. Um, and you know what? I think a lot of people 
are very comfortable with making that argument. I feel, so like for me personally, and, and you know, I usually don't get into my own personal politics, but I'll get into this. Um, I'm one of those people who I, I think one of the biggest problems with this country is it doesn't matter who gets elected anymore. The military industrial complex stays the same. Right. Um, you know, they, they, you know, the military runs the show in terms of how we fight wars, where we fight wars, what we do. Um, I am not entirely comfortable with having people who have participated in that process being in power. That, that being said, I can tell you this. I went to the, um, the Green Party convention a couple of weeks ago. And that would be and, good to hear, too, please. Uh, yeah. What's went, different the, there or the same? Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, here's the thing. I, I consider myself a liberal person. Um, and a, there are a lot of issues that the Green Party brings up that, that I am uh, sympathetic towards or I agree with them on. But I can tell you this, being there in person, they are not capable of, of using the, the power of government. They're, um, they're an absolute mess. They're disorganized. They're not serious candidates, right? Um, they, there, was they, a, they are, there was a saying at Ferguson, they think mm-hmm. it's a game. They think it's a joke. And, and the mm-hmm. survivors of Ferguson can tell you it's not a game, and it's certainly mm-hmm. not a joke. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt there, but it did no. kind of something our audience is used to. No, that's, you're exactly, but that's, what, that's the whole point here is I, I was trying to explain to somebody the other day, and somebody was playing devil's advocate with me, and they were saying, why not go ahead and vote outside of the, the two-party dichotomy. And I'll tell you what, right now, I'll just put this on, out on the table. I think America would be a lot stronger and a, and a lot better country if we had a third-party alternative that would keep the left and the right from doing what they do. Um, I, don't, I, don't think it's a, I don't think that's a great system, and I think it's the, the time is far past for us to have an alternative that can sort of keep them honest and keep them from, you know, uh, participating in the same tricks that each side pulls. But this situation here, this is like finding somebody bleeding on the side of the road and saying, well, we can take them to the, we, you know, we can bandage them up, right? We can stop the bleeding and then figure out what to do or we can just take a knife and cut into them deeper and find out what's going on inside of them. And I think in that analogy, I think Trump is the latter. I think, you know, I think that's burning down the house to find out how the house works, you know. Um, and with Clinton, yeah, there are concerns. And, and I think anybody, um, anybody who's being honest will sit here and tell you that there are concerns. But at the same time, one of them seems like they would be competent in the seat of power and that they wouldn't, I don't know, counteract 70 years' worth of nuclear deterrence. And then the other one is Donald Trump. And, and I think that's a really frightening prospect. And, and when I saw what the third-party alternatives were, I, I do not have faith that Jill Stein could be president. I don't have faith that Jill Stein could be a, a congresswoman. I don't have faith that Jill Stein could be the mayor of a town to be honest. Um, I, I think the political acumen uh, that was on display a couple weeks ago and even a couple nights ago on the CNN town hall, I thought that was really, really concerning. So I find myself now sort of, and th- by the way, this is another thing. This is an election, like, uh, I'm 34 years old. I'm sort of like coming into adulthood as we speak, right? Um, Are you a millennial, I'm, by the way? <laughs> I teach millennials. And I think that I, I think I'm on the right there between Generation X and Millennials. I, I don't have a lot in common with Millennials. Um, I teach them, and so I see a lot of differences there in terms of, of, of um, you know, sort of personalities and how we view the world. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't have children yet, but I plan on having children. And so there's like a motivation for me to sort of make sure that there's at least a country that they can live in, and it's not some sort of, like, nuclear hellscape. There's a – we've got about five minutes left in this section, um, mm-hmm. and I sent you a link to Groundhog Day. I, I want to mm-hmm. redo Groundhog Day. We can start scripting whenever you're ready and <laughs> see if we can get hold of Bill Murray. Uh, <laughs> 
I, I sent you the link, and I, I'm fairly certain you didn't have enough time to get into it. But there's there's interviews there with election integrity people. Cliff, Cliff, uh, <laughs> in your moment, I just lost his name. Uh, Cliff Arnebeck. Cliff Arnebeck. Uh-huh. Uh, and he's back in the headlines. Uh, he wasn't available for the interview to try to clear up some of the questions he's got going. Uh, mm-hmm. Another part of that, election integrity, um, Bob Fitrakis. Uh, we were trying to get him on the show. He's, he's never been on yet. Still waiting to hear from him about that interview. I tried to get a hold of Jill Stein because she started this election off with uh, she was arrested four years ago, uh, mm-hmm. try, trying to trying to attend the debate. Which whether mm-hmm. she can do it or not, at least another viewpoint would mm-hmm. be good. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm still waiting on the Stein campaign to get back to me on that interview. That uh, there was four years ago that issue of third party debates, so that we get some different viewpoints here. There was an emergency group, and we had two people on. We've got a, there'll be a link to it. That we're talking about third-party debates, and, and that morphed into open debates 2016. And this is four years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Where are those open debates four years later? Where is something that stops this pattern of, of obvious election integrity problems over and over and over? Are you seeing any solutions? I, I it, mm-hmm. How do we get out of Groundhog Day? Reboot. Yeah, you, you know, I actually, I, I went to a couple of Bernie Sanders rallies this year. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to the Democratic National Convention, and I spent my entire week with uh, the Bernie or Bust protesters outside. And I talked to my students, and, uh, you know, I look at all these polls where people don't trust Congress and they don't trust politicians anymore. I think there's room. I think there, there, I think there's a lot of passion for people who, you know, I, I think this, you, you, you said Groundhog Day. And, you know, if you remember in that movie, there's a certain point where depression sinks in for Bill Murray, mm-hmm. right? He's <laughs> like, I, he's like, I'm not going to get out of this. He tries to commit suicide like hundreds of times and he just, you know, sleepwalks through the day and he's so upset. And then there's that moment where he's like, you know what? I can make the best out of this. You know, he has that redemption moment. <laughs> And I think that's where we're going. I, I have to believe I it so. because, because I'll tell you what, the game is the game is tired. It's you know? not a game. It's not a joke. And that's part of the problem. That I exactly. It feels right. like a game because it's designed to feel like a game. Where our exactly. listeners are familiar with, with uh, uh, Anthony Sutton, the economic historian. He's documented mm-hmm. all of this stuff. Best anime money can buy. Uh, fear-based. And we'll have links to it again, although most of the people that have been through these shows have heard it a million times. But it explains the left-wing, right-wing false paradigm. Uh, and, and besides explaining it, it documents it. Again, not a conspiracy theory. This is history of a conspiracy in that case, and superbly documented. Um, I've got about two minutes left on on uh, stochastic terrorism. Have you... Is this something we should be paying attention to, <laughs> having having your experience last night and, and still well, getting death threats? Well, I'll tell, I'll tell you this right now. Um, I, I said this back in, I think it was December, was when I went to the, uh, the rally in South Carolina where Trump announced the Muslim ban. Um, if we get out of this election without a body count, <laughs> we're going to be extraordinarily lucky. But we and, won't. Uh, the body count is showing now what, yeah. whether – why – their bodies, we don't have pinned down yet, but the bodies are there. I mean, it's, it's well, limited I, I don't bloodshed. Know, I, I don't know if you Hopefully. heard the story, but I think it was last night uh, a man uh, stabbed a couple, and when he was arrested, he was talking about Trump rallies. And I think there, I think there's a lot of stuff like this that has sort of gone under the media's radar or, you know, it didn't make a good enough headline. I think what I'm looking at is – election night. Um, I'm extraordinarily worried that uh, Donald Trump will not concede and that he won't recognize, uh, you know, what will inevitably be a defeat. 
Um, I don't know if you've you've seen this, but four years ago when uh, Barack Obama won re-election over Mitt Romney, uh, Trump tweeted a lot of uh, uh, things about marching on Washington and and not letting this stand and taking a country back. Um, I'm really worried that this person will not participate in the great American tradition of concession and the peaceful transfer of power. And if that's the case, I'm worried. I'm worried there's going to be violence then. And quite frankly, I think by the time the debates start, I think that the narrative that that campaign pushes, I think it's going to be reaching a fever pitch. And I just hope that we're able to to weather our way through it. Ballots, not bullets. It's, it's, there you it's, go. It's, it's worth anything at this point to continue to defend ballots, not bullets. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the shooting starts, it's hard to get it turned back off. Exactly um, right. And by the way, on that note, real, real fast, I think think that, um, you know, we we forget now, but if you'll remember, I think it was just last month we had what happened in Dallas, right? And, you know, we we move so fast now that we forget that in the days... I've forgotten. Please refresh my memory. (laughs) The the shooting of policemen in Dallas. And then before before that, we have the riots. We have... and, And by the way, there was a spate of of shootings that followed Dallas. There were a few tense days that a lot of people don't want to remember anymore where it felt like America was on the on the fringe of anarchy. And we, you know, anymore, especially with media confluence and, and all of these things happening, I mean, we're just a couple of moments away at any moment from there from there being like a real, real dangerous issue at hand and, and, and I think that I think that's something to keep in mind. And that's Groundhog Day depression. Uh, the mm-hmm. technical term for that is is learned helplessness. We'll have a link to it, although I've said that about a billion times on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and another one is uh, anime. Um, I don't think I said that right. Uh, without law. Uh, mm. I, I, another senior moment, I don't think I said the word right. <laughs> I think I said the cartoons <laughs> from Japan. <laughs> Either I'll, have a, I'll have a link to it because it's it's linked to it's a basic psychological principle. Uh, mm-hmm. So it fits with when we script this for Bill Murray because he needs the work, <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't we all? Uh, we've got <laughs> we've got about eighteen minutes left, and now I'd like to get uh, your creative writing professor and. Uh, in past shows, uh, well, you said yourself that you got into this because there was a lack of reporting that was meeting your needs uh, as a as a news consumer, and we ran into that in Occupy. This used to be Occupy America, um, so we we were Occupy the media. Ben Swan, uh, he's won two Emmys, I believe. Uh, he gave us our first course in. Journalism 101. I was trying to talk him into, how about just reporter? Uh, <laughs> I'm not doing very well with that movement. We've had uh, Minneapolis Sam. Uh, he's the editor of the North Star Post. He broke the story about the FBI fleet spying on us from planes, helicopters, not drones yet that we know of. Uh, really good reporter. And that's why I started listening to your tweets was a heads up from Sam. Thank you, Sam. Um, Thank you, Sam. <laughs> we've, uh, I've got, we'll post four of your short stories. Uh, word pictures. Again, back to William L. Shire, what his reporting did superbly was gave you the feel. Um, can you talk to us about how do you make word pictures? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's um, this is one of those things that you know we teach in creative writing. It's it's a, it's a show don't tell situation. Um, you know, it's about it's about describing a scene and trusting readers to fill in the gaps. Um, you know, it's when you tell people what to think, they tend not to think it. <laughs> um, I was actually I was actually just telling my students about this. I think it was Wednesday. You know, it's um, it's this idea of, of um, I don't know. Do you have a dog by any chance? Yes, I'm looking at okay. her now. 
<laughs> You'll hear her at some point in here. She's bucking for scale, too. Well, and, you know, it's one of those things where it's like when you need to give a dog medicine, right? Like I have a dog <laughs> right now who uh, he, he's, he's been taking medicine lately. And the way you give him medicine is you put the pill or the powder or whatever it is, you, you hide it. Right, uh-huh. you you hide it in a hot dog, or in the case of my dog, you hide it in peanut butter, and uh-huh. you know it's like that old principle of like a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. And Sometimes. what's actually ha- yeah, exactly? <laughs> so what's what's actually happening there is that you're allowing the reader to participate in the process. Um, I think most writers who aren't successful, or most writers who um, you know, sort of, you know, hit their head up on the ceiling of, of writing or publishing. Part of the thing is that they're not trusting readers enough. They don't, um, you know, they, they're, they're very concerned with getting across their style. They're very concerned with um, not taking any chances that the reader might not follow their train of thought. So what they do is they badger the reader with their writing. And, you know, they'll, um, they'll over-describe things. Right, um, they'll spend pages describing lampshades and windows and frames and all this stuff, and and it, at some point or another, you have no idea what you're looking at, but you know you've been looking at it for too long. Um, <laughs> As the, opposed to the, the whole... Shakespearean uh, <laughs> tradition of just come out with a fake tree and say this is Sherwood Forest, I guess. Exactly, and that's the funniest thing is. When you're writing, what you're doing is you're actually playing a very interesting game with your reader. Um, you know, it, it, it's one of those old kid games where you're out playing with somebody and somebody's like, you know, look over there, there's an alien or something. And, and if a person doesn't want to play with you, they'll be like, there's <laughs> not an alien over there. And if they do want to play with you, they'll buy into it and they'll describe it as they see it. And all of a sudden, you have a conspiracy. Right, and <laughs> we're trying to avoid that word. It's coincidence well, that, theory is my specialty. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you are you're communicating on this sort of shared reality that you two are creating. So, like, if you if you give a reader enough information where they can make the picture inside of their mind, then they're going to be engaged because all of a sudden they're putting effort into it. And why would they want what they're putting effort into it not to succeed? Right. So all of a sudden they have skin in the game and all of a sudden they're seeing what you're telling them to see. But they're also filling in details and they're also making logical leaps, which is the other part of it is if you trust the reader to be intelligent enough to figure out what's happening, then they're going to think that the product that you give them is better because it it reminds them that they're smart enough to get it. Right. So, like, for instance, um, in the article that I wrote about last night's rally, um, I had this very, very peculiar run-in at the very end of it where there were these two men smoking cigarettes outside a convention center, and one of them said, and I mentioned this earlier, he said, you know, we might have to take matters into our own hands. Um, it's much better to have this person say that and let the reader fill in the blanks of what that means as opposed to me then going on two to three paragraphs talking about, um, you know, people marching on Washington with guns and pitchforks and and taking over the government. Um, It's much better if it sort of sits there by itself and so the person reads the article and they have to sort of let that thought sort of marinate in their head. So it's all about giving the reader enough space and getting out of their way. And I think if you tell people what's going on or if you give enough physical description that it can even paint the beginnings of a picture, they'll go ahead and fill in the rest of the colors. How does that kind of bring it back to your, in addition to fiction, your political correspondent? Um, trust your reader. Let's take that to trust trust the electorate. Um, mm. What? Uh, any thoughts on that? Man, that is an interesting question. So, I mean, it's okay, got a long history. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the medium answer on that. Because okay. this is, Please. Cause I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this right here. This election has been kind of life changing for me in a, in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, obviously it's been life changing for me because somehow or another I got, I got thrown into a national conversation I didn't really ask to be a part of. 
Um, so now all of a sudden I'm doing that, and I have no idea how it happened, but here I am holding on for dear life. But on the other hand, before this election started, um, I was much more of a pessimist than I am now. And that's great. Um, yeah, and, you know, that's the thing is everyone tells me. So, like, you know, I have all these people sending me these really offensive uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll have some of those pictures. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I have seen I have seen the ugliest part of humanity, to be honest. Yes. yes. And um, people ask me, like, how do you and do it? And how does it? that feel, once again? That, that, that's what you do better than almost anybody well, I'm seeing at this point. The feeling is conveyed. I'm not sure how you did it, but I got it loud well, and clear. You know what it does is it makes me sad. It It used to make me angry, and I used to believe... Um, see, and, and by the way, this is why you're getting the medium answer. Um, you know, I used to believe in pure good and pure evil. Mm-hmm. And I used to look at these people who would send me, um, you, you know, these awful pictures of, uh, of, of like, dead minorities and Holocaust-themed pictures and just the, the most grotesque things you could ever imagine – They used to send those to me, and at first blanche, I would just feel sick, and I would just feel sad and and just hopeless. And then it got to the point where it happened so much that I had to look beyond the surface of it, and I had to realize that anybody who did that, anybody who harasses, anybody who's racist, anybody who's a misogynist, they're actually really wounded people. Um, Something has happened to them. Something has hurt them and scarred them and has left them vulnerable to this sort of putrid ideology. How so did you get that to... empathy? How, <laughs> how, did, how did that come about? Besides I don't, desensitization, I don't which is a fine NASA term <laughs> for being, getting used to being scared to death. Um, well, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think on one hand getting a home security system helped. <laughs> um, but, no, there, there was this moment where... Um, I was explaining this to somebody the other day. Somebody attacked me. And, and, you know, they not only, like, they threaten my life. They try and get me fired from my job. They try and ruin my reputation. Um, that used to be assault, by the way. Not assault and right, battery. Exactly. Well, and exactly. Right, exactly. Impunity. Right. And now we, just, now we just look at it and shrug. Um, <laughs> and... I have this moment where one of the people who did that, they were calling for me to be fired. And one of these people did that. And I I did a thing that I hadn't been doing because, to be honest, like, the day after the Greensboro rally, I was, I I think I ended up getting, like, 18,000 new followers. And, you know, like, my my mentions wouldn't stop and replies wouldn't stop. And I wasn't Tough way to get followers. It's a lot cheaper to buy them. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I wasn't looking at these things very closely. I was just letting them roll by. And I saw this one. I think I was having dinner or having a drink at a bar or something like that. And I saw this one, and I clicked on his picture, and I read his profile. And I saw that he was a writer. And, <laughs> and I thought, okay, here's a writer. What's he doing? And I, I messaged him, and I was like, hey, let's not talk about politics. Talk to me about writing. And he wouldn't do it at first, but he kept, but I kept going after it. And eventually we talked about writing and, you know, we sort of, he he ended up telling me, he's like, I can't believe we just had this conversation that I actually like you now. And it kind of started something inside of me where I was like, I have to start seeing these people as people, right? Was he anonymous before Uh, you made contact and reached out? uh, Is that a part of this impunity? I think a lot of it's anonymity. That's exactly right. But so to put a finer point on this thing, that experience and what I've seen since, because America has wholly rejected this stuff, you know, like Trump's Trump's got about 30% of the country who would be willing to vote for him and about 10% of the country who's like gung-ho about him. Um, It's been rejected and it's going to be rejected and I want to believe that this is just the death rattle of a of a of a mistake long needed like rectified. So I've had to actually somehow or another over the course of this election and getting 
like you said, assaulted, getting threatened, getting my livelihood threatened, um, I've had to actually become more of an optimist. And I'm actually on this side now. I think he's going to get beat, and I'm not so sure that anything's going to get better or if, you know, Republican Congress is going to work with a President Clinton. I'm not so sure about any of that. I'm not so sure we're going to get money out of politics or we're going to fix voting or representative uh, rights or any of those or, or things. Or just count the votes. Or, to, or, or can just can we, just can we let people vote? You know, yes. like, can we yes. get to that point? And I, I don't know for sure that those things are going to get fixed, but I do know that there is now a part of me that has hope that they will be. And I have to look on the bright side of that stuff, and, and quite frankly, my situation has, has made me change my outlook on life. Um, we, we've only got about four minutes left. Um Part of being from southern Indiana, I don't know whether you were in the what used to be called the bloody eighth district, eighth congressional district. I think you were out on the on the edge of it. Mm-hmm. And speaking of voting integrity, that's one of the places that's been gerrymandered to make the seats safer. But it used to be called sure. the bloody eighth because it changed hands a lot, mm-hmm. um, and it made us a bellwether, uh, a, a predictor for the rest of the country. Uh, again, I don't know if that's still the case, and I'm not sure I can even find a link to it because it's pre-internet, but I'll, I'll see if mm-hmm. I can put one in if I can find it. Uh, but, but what's your sense of, as as a Midwesterner, I, I think of Ernie Pyle. Uh, he's from up in your mm-hmm. neck of the woods. Uh, mm-hmm. Shire was was writing for the Chicago Tribune with maybe a Midwestern, Midwestern audience outlook. Um uh, there's a whole list of, of writers that have come from here, but it's, what is what makes our viewpoint different? Because I have a lot of people tell me you've got a really different viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we're <laughs> three minutes, so this is our big our big finish here. So, hey, also I can talk about this for three hours. I know we'll get you back you. on the show. Um, I hope. It's so funny, you know, Midwesterners, are, we're so happy to gaze at our navel and then feel guilty about it. <laughs> well, um, watching corn grow will tend to do that to you. Exactly. And, and you know, that's the part of it is, um, you know, I had never heard the term flyover state. I assume you've is, heard that. Is that point. Sarah Kedrick out of St. Louis? Maybe. That I, might I, be the case. I had never heard And Ferguson until, Uprising. I'd never heard of her until there, but she's a superb writer. Um, she is. I'm not sure if it's her term or not, but I never heard it until a few years ago when I started, you know, dealing with fiction that was set in the Midwest. Um, there is the idea that the Midwest is sort of a wasteland of culture, <laughs> right? It's, it's just a bunch of... You can make a pretty good case for that, but well, go you know, ahead. Well, that's the funniest thing about it is... I find Midwesterners endlessly fascinating. Um, New Harmony. Is, have you yeah, been to New Harmony? The boatload of knowledge. I have. Absolutely, I have. And that's the funniest thing is, you know, it, they're, we're dichotomous. Like we, I think yes. Midwesterners are seen as sort of country bumpkins <laughs> who never got with the program and moved to the city. And in fact, I think there are a lot of people in the Midwest who live a completely different existence from anybody else in the country. They have all these different confluences that have affected them. I mean, you know, we're from southern Indiana, right? Um, my <laughs> accent... Guilty is charged. Right? My accent and your accent is more southern <laughs> than it is Midwestern, right? Yes. And that, yes. and that all has to... When I moved down to Georgia for this job, people are like, how in the hell do you talk the way you do? And I was like, that's the way it works. And that's the whole point of it is that is this Frederick Turner Jackson is is the answer to this, the frontierism (laughs) and and the different frontierism. I'll throw a link in on it, but go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's it's all these different factors that have come together in this one place. Um, And I'll tell you the honest to God truth, and I'm sure that you know this is true, um, (laughs) Midwesterners are not single-issue voters. And no, bloody eight. That, that, that was why We're I brought not, that back up. I mean, I have met, oh, man, I've met 
pro-life libertarians. <laughs> uh, I, you know, and by the way, by when I say libertarians, I mean people who say I'm pro-life but don't think the government should have anything to do with it. And you know, and, and then I've met other people who, um, you know, I've met farmers who grow pot and are against crime on a level unheard of. Um, people are contradictory in the Midwest. Um, again, we've got about we're, 30 we're, seconds here. Sure. And, and, we're, and, we're, and there's, we're humble but passionate by ourselves. That's what I would say. And I think I, that there's plays one out last on thing I'd like you to touch on. And we have an international sure. audience because of the stories we do, which is mm-hmm. strange enough coming out of a Midwest uh, cattle pasture which is where our studio is located. Uh, but there are Australians, uh, and hopefully we can get you on that, his show. Um, he'll get a kick out of it. Uh, there's a, an expatriate from New Zealand who we've had on the show. Uh, to make a long story short, because I'm going over, but this isn't commercial, so we can do that. Uh, what have you got to say to the foreigners that don't get a vote, but for sure are going to be affected? by whoever we end up with out of this election. And, and you know, I think I think the joke answer is to say we're sorry about Trump, right? But <laughs> but I think in all truth, I think in all truth that I, I hope people around the world will understand that you cannot listen to every single thing that that man says and then extrapolate the idea that that is what America is or that's how Americans feel. Um, you, can't, you can't see what he's doing and then say, obviously, this is how America is or that's where America is going. I would actually say uh, that that is where America used to be and that you're actually getting a glimpse of an echo of the creation of, like, a new generation of, of the country. So I guess hold the past. Well, they're terrorized, too. Uh, For sure. Part of stochastic terror. Um, hopefully we can all get past the fear. Uh, 